our work is about supporting girls to be able to make their own basic choices about whether they continue school, what kind of job they do, being able to choose their partner for life. Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Welcome to Purposely with Clay Dunn, CEO of Valve for Girls. They're a nonprofit working with the wedding industry to help end child marriage and support girls to live freely. Based in New York City, Clay leads a small team focused on building relationships, connecting people, raising funds for impactful projects. Clay, an experienced nonprofit marketeer, started his career in the entertainment industry. Awesome guy. Going to enjoy our conversation. Before we dive into it, can I just ask whatever platform you're on, whether it's Spotify, Apple, hit follow, it'll ensure you get future episodes. Enjoy. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, the all in one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Clay Dunn, a really warm welcome to Pepsi Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You're the CEO of Val for Girls. What's their mission? What's their purpose? At Val for Girls, we turn celebrations, the kind of celebrations that you and I attend, uh, into support for girls' futures around the globe. Uh, girls are facing a lot of challenges, like 12 million girls this year will become child brides, uh, alongside you know people who are passionate and people who are celebrating love for themselves, we raise uh, money that's invested in local communities to support the futures of girls. And so, yeah, one stat that really stood out to me is one girl every seconds is turned into a child bride. That's phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, the scale of the problem is really tremendous. This year alone, 12 million girls, that equates to a girl every three seconds. Like, just think about that every three seconds. And it goes on and on. Like It happens truly all around the world, uh, including here in the U.S. It is uh, you know, across countries and cultures and religions. It's a really big problem that has largely been overlooked in the international development space for way too long. And you know, we believe that we can end the crisis by investing in girls locally. And just to be clear, this is against the child's will, like this is against the girl's will, because there's some different cultures have got different approaches to, to marriage and, and um, different ways of seeing the world, but this is against their will, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the majority of uh, child marriages are unions that a girl is not choosing, right? That someone is choosing for them for any host of reasons, like poverty being a really big driver, like families being concerned about you know, not being able to feed everyone, like a lack of educational opportunities. You know, if a girl can't continue school, parents looking at marriage as a solution for like, what do we do with her? And really just tradition, right? That generation after generation has done this and, you know, they do it thinking it's the best, the best option for their children, right? Like people aren't marrying their daughters off nefariously. They are in most cases doing it because they can't see other options. And so you're effectively a fundraising charity. Is that true? You you sort of leverage brands, donors, and the wedding industry to raise money, to raise funds? Yeah, correct. So, you know, our reason for existing is Bound for Girls. This is our fifth year, coming up on our fifth year of operation. And we're all about bringing new money to this cause. Like we have this big idea that we can turn celebrations, largely weddings, uh, into a sustainable revenue stream that can 
go to support local leaders who are working directly with girls. So we raise money alongside celebrations, alongside brands, and with event professionals around the world who make us part of their businesses and see such an alignment between you know, them wanting to help couples celebrate love and our want of everyone being able to choose love for themselves. Wonderful. So you're set up as a charity. You're a 5013C, as they say in the States. Just tell us a bit about, like, it's you've got a relatively small team that's sort of boxing above your uh, weight grade, if you like, but raising how much a year? Yeah, we're a U.S. 501c3, and uh, while we're based in the U.S. and have a small team here, we work with partners all around the globe, and this year we're going to be raising just under $6 million. Wonderful. And that's a really crucial point there around you don't pretend to know how to impact positively in those countries. So you rely on those those partners, those NGO partners, to know how to make an impact. Oh, absolutely. Our entire approach is that we do not have any expertise about what a you know local leader in Guatemala uh, should be implementing in terms of programming to support girls. It, instead, we go into communities and say, we're making funding available for this purpose. What would you do with the funding? And these amazing women from around the world have answered that call, bringing forward their ideas for if resourced, what they would do to support girls in their community. And it's really exciting because that approach means the portfolio of what we're funding is really diverse. You know, there are a lot of things that you would expect, like, uh, you know, programs that are helping to keep girls in school, uh, but there are also more non-traditional programs like sports and drama clubs that are teaching girls about their rights and building their agency, economic programs that are teaching girls how they can make some money uh, so that they can add to their family's income and make some of their own financial choices. You know, programs that are teaching girls basic leadership skills, giving them safe spaces to gather. It's a really exciting collection of programming. Yeah, real, about empowerment from what I've seen. And I'd only, like this admission from me, I'd only really just clicked probably like five days ago after we'd spoken that the, the name of the charity, Val, is is linked to its its purpose. But tell us a bit about the name. Tell us a bit about the aha moment that its founder, um, Mabel Van Orange, had to, to launch the charity because that, that's fascinating. Yeah, so we have, we have two founders, uh, Mabel Van Orange, who's a global human rights activist, originally from the Netherlands, and then uh, Darren Walker, who is the head of the Ford Foundation. And Mabel and Darren had partnered together on advancing the movement to end child marriage for well more than a decade, and had come to believe that one really crucial piece that was missing, even though more attention and more funding and more global advocacy was happening on the cause, like, you know, the cause, like, Ending child marriage became part of the SDGs. You know, more countries were making commitments. Uh, but there was a really critical missing piece. And that was that on the ground level, we weren't resourcing local organizations who were in the best position to make real change in their communities. Those small organizations that are working directly with girls and who are part of the fabric of you know, local life and while there was a lot of movement at the international level, that wasn't translating to the ground level. So they've been thinking about this for quite a while. And then Mabel went to the wedding of some friends who generously uh, 
it totals their guests. Like, yes, you can buy something off of our registry, but why don't you also consider making a donation to this cause? And it was an organization that Mabel was involved in that wasn't set up to take money from people like you and me. Like, it, they take money more from, you know, large foundations, sort of government funding. And Mabel had an aha moment sitting there thinking, you know, weddings are a really big business. A lot of money changes hands. Uh, you bring together all the people that you most love into a room. Might there be an opportunity alongside celebrations to raise money to support girls? And that's where the idea for Val was born. The, you know, the name is, yes, a nod to, to weddings and those vows that we take when we, you know, choose our partners, but also a vow as in a promise for supporting girls for supporting their futures, for shifting power to them, that they can make their own fundamental choices about their lives. Yeah, it's pretty pretty clever because it's a captive audience, right? And it's and it must really, you know, not only the money that's raised at those weddings, but it's also that that sort of realization that not all uh, humans, not all like children, do not choose to take a path in their life that they want to. So really clever, and you know huge industry in the States, I'm sure. It's huge. I mean, globally, it's a $400 billion industry if you include the gifting economy around winnings. In the U.S. alone, more than $100 billion a year. It's a massive industry. You know, and, uh, you know, a couple who gets married in the U.S., they employ an average of 11 vendors in that. And, you know, there are going to be something like 2.2 million weddings in the U.S. alone this year. And that's a really big number. A lot of people who are pulled into celebrations. Yeah. And you've got a fair amount of advocates, people who are in the industry, who believe in the impact that you're having, the work that you're doing. Is that how you have success in raising the money that you do? Like it's, it's sort of being word of mouth and it's the industry that's supporting you? Yeah. I mean, you know, when we had this idea for Val, we went to some some organizations and some leaders uh, in the events industry to share the vision and you know to get their input and to ask for their support and you know we got a lot of really positive reaction to the concept and, and what we were looking to do and because of that you know we saw companies like the Knot Worldwide, which they have the largest wedding digital presence around the world, like come on board as one of our launch partners. You know, we invested a lot of time in getting to know a lot of the prominent leaders of the events industry, those people who really set the pace for what's happening, like trends and in, in weddings, and as well as seeking out a lot of media partners who, you know, cover the industry who uh, were in a position to help us raise awareness. And so, you know, we're still a small organization, right? Like a handful of staff who work with, on this with me in the day-to-day. But, you know, we really prioritize relationships within the industry. And, you know, we've been able to create a network of event professionals, for instance, that we have more than 800 event professionals in nearly 30 countries around the world who are supporting us now. And, you know, continuously growing that by, you know, introducing ourselves to, to event professionals that we meet, you know, going to conferences and gatherings that bring them together. You know, it's a really joyful industry and they're a lot of fun to partner with. And you've been CEO for four years and I'm really love to sort of find out more about your career, but 
Have you had a chance to go and visit your sort of partner NGO and get close and personal to those those initiatives, those projects? Have you been able to get out there and see and see and believe? Yeah, I've, I've been lucky to, just before the pandemic, I traveled to Uganda and spent time with grantees there in my very early days as the CEO, you know, conversations that I think about every day. And then just after, or last year, uh, once we were able to travel again and, and could do so in ways that we felt we weren't putting anyone at, at risk, was able to travel to Nepal with our founder and see the you know constellation of grantees that were supporting there, uh, visiting a lot of them in their communities, seeing their work up close, which was really inspiring. Yeah, and crucial for you, I imagine, when you're you know inspiring your team or when you're talking to potential donors to to sort of being that close to the cause and really being able to touch it in many ways and be close to those partners would be crucial to you and your your storytelling, I guess, and just your motivation as well. Tell us a bit about how you connect to the cause on a personal level, because if if I take you right back to your sort of upbringing in your childhood, you lived in a a Western Kentucky, you lived in, we've spoken before about this, but you lived in a really isolated, relatively poor community, and, and you were looking for ways to transcend or to escape that, and through education is, is sort of the path that you took. But tell us a bit about your connection to what you're doing now, but looking back through the lens of your life. Yeah, I mean, I think as I uh, think about my my career in working for, you know, two, two different causes at this point, like there's sort of a through line of opportunity, right? Like wanting to make sure that kids have opportunity pursue who they want to be and what they want their lives to be. You know, as, as you mentioned, I grew up in a really conservative and rural setting and a place where when I looked around, I didn't see a life that I wanted to live or, and one that I thought was was right for who I was. Like I was a closeted, like queer kid and uh, with a lot of fear about what the future held. And for me, like, my opportunity was to get an education, like to be able to go on to college and that, you know, open opportunities for me that, you know, led to the life that I live today. And, you know, I think about that a lot with our work at Val for Girls, like, you know, so much of our work is about supporting girls to be able to make their own basic choices about whether they continue school, what kind of job they do, being able to choose their partner for life. (laughs) These like really fundamental pieces that, you know, I have so often taken for granted in my, my own life and, you know, making sure that people anywhere, regardless of where you're born, have the opportunities to make your own choices. Like just really important to me. And what sort of age or what was the earliest memory of that sense that you didn't necessarily fit in and that you would probably have to leave? Like, was this, was it really young and did you have a sense that you had to grow up fast? For me, it was, I was like 11 or 12 years old, right? Like, that I realized that I was very different from the other kids that I was surrounded by, like realizing that I was, that I was gay, living in a really conservative place and having a lot of fear about what that meant. And if I 
you know, disclose that, like what it would mean both within my family and also within my community, you know, and, and sort of held that, you know, throughout my teenage years, right? And then really started to view leaving that small town and going to college as my escape, right? As my opportunity. And, you know, being really focused on that, like there's a whole journey there of, and that continues into college of, uh, you know, self-acceptance and just embracing the person that I, that I was and like dealing with the, that fear and those insecurities. But something from like the time I was 12 to the time I was 19, like that, you know, about yourself, you're sort of scared of in a way if that makes sense. Like, yeah. And, um, I don't know not feeling like you can fully share who you are. Yeah. So arriving at university and then kind of letting rip, like <laughs> suddenly being that person you wanted to be. Not, like, not as much on letting rip. Like, you know, I, I mean, I was proudly was, and still I am a big nerd. <laughs> and, uh, very much a like rule follower and really studious. And, uh, you know, I was able to go to a, I left this like tiny town and went to this massive university. Like, and it was the very best thing for me, like being dropped into this like really big community all of a sudden. And, uh, I was able to, because I had done well in school, I was able to be a part of this sort of honors college that had a really strong sense of community. And, you know, that sort of gave me my like early foundation in college, like surrounded by these people. And it was more in the, by the time I get to the second year of university, feeling much more comfortable with like embracing who I was and then like starting to share that with friends and that's on that sort of journey of self-acceptance. Yeah. That search for identity and or just being comfortable. Have you did you stay connected to your 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 old life, like your old place, those people in any way, or did you sort of cut ties? Uh it's a complicated question. I some people, yes, but like I, for, for several reasons, like I don't really go back to my hometown anymore. My, my brother now lives in a different place and he has these twin daughters that I'm obsessed with that we spent a lot of time with. So most of my like going home now is traveling to see them, but I don't make it back to the small town much. Yeah. And so interesting choice. So you do a BSc in political science, like why politics? You know, I was always really fascinated with policy and what it meant for people's lives. Uh, you know, in uh, college, I really gravitated toward both uh, economics and political science, like thinking about their practical application of people's lives. And especially in political science, like had so much inter- interest actually in the legal system in the U.S. and how courts shape policy and how that policy then impacts people's lives. I just loved studying it. I had no real end goal in mind, like about what I would do following that, but it was just very much, you know, found myself captivated by that as well as like all sorts of literature courses. I was a person in university who I I didn't even declare a major until just before the final year, like, cause I was taking you know, a wide range of liberal arts courses. And then I think 
if I'm being, uh, if I'm looking back correctly, <laughs> sitting down before the final year and being like, what degree am I going to get with this collection of courses? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you love studying. Like you said, you're a, you're a sort of self-confessed geek. Like you, you like, yeah, you I get love lost studying. in. Love mm. studying, love reading. Like I'm a huge reader to this day of all kinds of things. And uh, I just love learning, right? Like I've always had a thirst for knowing more about the world experiencing more of the world and wanting wanting to see as much as I can. Yeah. So out of university, from what I can see, you take up a sort of fellowship in in the Big Apple, like in New York. So I'm imagining quite an extreme move, Kentucky to New York, or had you already been and sort of sampled that? No, I mean, it was a really big move for me. So I was really trying to sort out, like, what am I going to do after I graduate from university? And like, what, where do I want to go next? And I started thinking about, cause I, I was, I was toying with going to a graduate school and, you know, I started down that path, but, you know, as I spoke to different advisors in college, you know, they really advised me, this is a really big investment of both time and money and you should go. Cause I, you know, I was going to be paying for it myself, right? Like I, you know, I wasn't, I, I wasn't such a good student that I was going to be able to go to graduate school with, uh, you know, sort of for free or something, right? And I yeah. certainly certainly didn't have the money to self-finance it, right? It was going to be like taking out loans and those things. And an advisor really pushed me that unless I have a really clear goal in mind, I'm really certain I want to do this, that I should hold off on, on graduate school, like go have a different kind of experience. And I stumbled upon this fellowship program that the city of New York does where they bring 25 recent college graduates into full-time roles in the city government. And then you also have a uh, like seminar one day a week where you spend time with people who are either elected officials or leading city agencies, you know, city government in, in New York is massive. And I was lucky to be chosen as one of the 25. I was the only non Ivy league uh, fellow and it was an incredible introduction to New York City. Like, I was making no money. I think it was making the equivalent of, at the time, I think it was 22000 US dollars for the year. And living in like a shoebox of an apartment with someone else and loving every minute of being in New York, like thinking that I had everything that I needed and just sort of exploring what the city had to offer and also learning a lot about city government. And it was an incredibly fun period of time. Yeah. And going back to that identity piece and, and not feeling like you could be yourself in Western Kentucky, but certainly in New York, like you didn't feel that different. No, I felt like I could do and be anything that I wanted in New York. Like mostly because you know, it's just, you're surrounded by all these people. And I mean, New York is really an opportunity to make whatever you want of your life. <laughs> really interesting twist in your career. So real focus on, from what I can see, is from you know, TV, film, especially around using sort of media, digital expertise that you developed. How did that come into your life? Like, how did you end up with those sort of skills and expertise? So when I when I left the uh, when I left the city government fellowship, I took a year and had a sort of adventure in electoral politics. <laughs> which a person who had been a mentor to me was running for office back in Kentucky. And I decided to go in and do it with him for a year, work for the campaign. And it was 
one of the very best and very worst years of my entire life. It was a hard lesson for me as an individual because I had always been in this mode of if you work really hard, you can make anything happen. And I worked harder than I had ever worked on anything in that campaign, and we lost. <laughs> and I was and that's, devastated. <laughs> and that's Jim Gray. Yeah, Jim Gray. I was devastated in a way that, like, you would think that I was the person on the ballot. <laughs> but after that, I decided to move to Washington, D.C. because I had visited several times and thought it would just be a great place to find a career, right? To, like, sort myself out, like, a lot of job opportunities. And I, I moved to D.C., like, without a job and was... Uh, like uh, serving as a temporary employee, like while I was looking, and I interviewed for a wide host of things. And I really wanted to go work for one of the large national nonprofits in the U.S. and was a finalist for roles with several, but I, I did not land the jobs. I cared a lot about in that period of my life about the sort of digital life around us and sort of emerging communities on the internet, uh, emerging technology with social media, pre-social media, but, you know, like the sort of, I was really fascinated with the ways in which we were becoming more online as a community. And I, and that's what my fellowship had been about in city government. And I met these people who had started a company that was like a really early early pioneer in digital marketing and sort of like where you could treat the internet as like a focus group and like learn about like what people were saying and measure that and like, you know, use it to shape marketing strategies. And I took a leap with them and went, worked with that them and was leading their work with film studios uh, like Disney and Sony around major film releases uh, that was my primary work. And so like wow. any, any movie that they were releasing, I would be consulting with them on how they were shaping the marketing campaign online. You know, things like, you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy, the Lord of the Rings, like being released on DVDs. Like it was a ton of fun. Like I was a really big entertainment fan, like movies and TV. And it was such a good learning opportunity for me, both about, marketing and like learning from these incredible marketers, but also it was a big management opportunity for me. Like I was an early stage employee at this organization. It grew a lot. I was suddenly like really young managing a team of people and sort of learning <laughs> how to manage and how not to manage through that. And, uh, you know, I, I stayed there for I think nearly five years learning and, and loved it. Cause this is like you were early to mid twenties, right? So, that, yeah. so you were a numbers pretty young but i have a sense with you that you, you you did grow up really fast and that you've had to sort stuff out in life yourself yeah and i've always just had the the mentality of like i can do anything you know like <laughs> i'm gonna make i'm gonna make this work and so you know really embracing the opportunity of this early stage organization like you know thinking you know this is Going, this is a new entity, but it's a risk that I feel like I can take and like something where I'll learn a lot. Like, you know, as, I, as I've considered different opportunities for myself at different points in my career, making sure that I have learning opportunities is something I really prioritize, right? Like, so I can learn and grow as a leader and as a person. And, you know, I 
I'm glad I left that role when I did, but I took a lot with me in terms of what I had learned. Yeah. So 2007, you joined National Geographic, which, you know, big global reach. But you said, you touched on it earlier around, you had set out to work for a nonprofit. You had this sense of this idea that your career was going to be on... Totally. You know, focused on for purpose. And and where do you think that came from? Like when you track back, where do you think that sort of, I need to work in something that's impactful and it needs to make a difference to, to, to the planet? Where do you think that comes from? I don't know where it came from initially, if I'm being honest. Like, I mean, I was involved in a lot of things in college and like had... Like I joined my first board while I was in college. I was very like community oriented when I was in college. Like I, I did this project my senior year that like got me like really introduced to a lot of people in the larger community that surrounded the university where I was. And I, I always felt this, this want of doing more cause related work, which is one of the reasons I went to National Geographic. Like while I was working in the for-profit piece, like National Geographic is very much a mission-oriented organization, whether that was in the, the for-profit or the nonprofit. And that was something that was really appealing to me, even though the mission there isn't like doesn't really speak to me like deeply, right? Like I was though like really excited by you know, helping viewers like be exposed to different cultures, different ideas, like through the kind of programming that we were doing and, you know, helping them learn. But even when I was there, I, I started to think like my next role, like I I loved entertainment marketing. I loved the willingness to try like the latest tactics, the latest technology, but it also like wasn't, and it was, you know, fairly lucrative. Like I, I was doing well, I thought for, for the age that I was, but I didn't feel a lot of passion for it. Right. Like I was enjoying it, but I was like, I'm young. I have a lot of career ahead of me. Like I need to do something that I feel like is really lighting me up inside. Yeah. Cause it looks like you, your next move was to no kid go hungry, which is assuming a non, it's a non-profit and you started as an intern. Was that, was that a step, a deliberate step back to go, I just want to be in that world and I want to, I want to make that move now. Like, was it an intentional thing and you were happy to kind of on the face of it, go backwards in terms of, I guess, salary and earnings, right? Yeah, actually. So this is what happened. So I was at National Geographic. I had, uh, because I was like <laughs> casting about for, like wanting to try and do different things. And then on sort of a lark, my husband and I started a food blog of all things. This is back in like, I don't know, a long time ago. I can't even tell you what year. And we had this food blog that we wrote for nine years and built this like big online community around it. And it was like such a like positive experience. And like, I was and still am like deeply interested in food and food related issues. Because of the blog, we got invited to this fundraiser for an anti-hunger organization. And I went to the, the fundraiser and I thought it was very cool. Like, I, you know, I liked the people that I met and, you know, what they were trying to do. Uh, and then like some months later, like somewhere between three and six months later, I got an email in my inbox from some job alerts thing from that saying that that same organization 
was preparing to launch something that they were calling the No Kid Hungry Campaign. And they were looking for experts to join them for different areas. And it was like one of those moments where you read a job description and you think it's like the perfect combination of both my personal interest and my professional skills, because the thing that I was being, the role that I was looking at was about helping to lead the online piece of building the campaign. They were looking for like an online expert to join them and to, you know, come in and and build the community around this campaign that they were uh, launching. And I interviewed, I loved them. Thankfully, they really liked me. (laughs) And I made the decision to like take my first nonprofit role, which was a really wild transition at the time, or at least it felt that way. Like, you know, I went from this like really established like media brand and, you know, big budgets and and this like really scrappy sort of very much like startup within an existing nonprofit. So there's a nonprofit that was starting it. You know, my first day I showed up, it's like no computer set up, no phone set up. Like someone yeah, walked, which is very walked, different to corporate, right? No, oh, so different. Someone walked me to a pile of furniture and they were like, take whatever you want. <laughs> and, but it was a blast. I mean, I stayed there for almost 10 years. Yeah, you really, you sort of, you know, you wet yourself up the organization as well. And did just in yeah. terms of the blog, like what sort of blog was it? Um, is it still going? Um, <laughs> what, what happened to the blog? Yeah. So the blog is still online, but it's not going. Uh, at, at year eight, we announced that it would be the final year of the blog. And then we did like a celebration year with all these things with different, with the community and the readers. The blog was called The Bitten Word. Uh, it's still online at thebittenword.com. Uh, it's a home cooking blog that focused on uh, trends in food media and like popular food magazines. We started it because we were getting all these magazines, but we weren't using them at all. And they were just like piling up. And we made this New Year's resolution that we would cook at least one thing from each of the magazines. Then to sort of keep ourselves accountable, we decided to blog about it. And little did we know that we were tapping into a very identifiable problem for people who love food magazines and that they're never using them. And so suddenly like a lot of people were really reading the blog, like more than a million people a year would come in and read the blog and, you know, leaving comments and sharing about what they were cooking. And it was a ton of fun, very different, but a ton of fun. (laughs) And it made you some money. Like you started to think maybe this could be the full-time gig or like what? No, I mean, we made a little bit of money, but honestly we were never focused on monetizing it. it. This is, this is like before like the rise of like, you know, digital influencers who are like monetizing their entire lives. Right. Like if, if we had, maybe if we had been smarter, we would have like, or if we felt the passion for it, we would have turned it into like some sort of food career. We did it. We did at one point have an agent and a, book proposal and, you know, talked to several publishers about it, but in the end felt like that it wasn't the path that either of us really wanted to take. Like, it's like, this has been a really fun thing. And it's like a really fun hobby and we enjoy doing it, but don't really feel like it's what our careers are meant to be. So, yeah. so after nine years, we sunset the blog, but it's still there. And we still hear from readers who still write us about things that they they're making that they learned about from us or, uh, just sharing recipes and updates about their lives, which I love. Wonderful. So transition from 
corporate, if you like, to NGO or to, to nonprofit. And you said you learned a lot about, you know, leadership and you learned a lot about the sort of differences maybe between, you know, a scrappy startup, a founder, you know, charity. Tell us about sort of some of the main realizations or lessons, like when you, when you arrived in that role, those roles. Lessons in terms of uh, what I was taking from for-profit. Yeah, the, the kind of dif- the difference between corporate and, and charity, why it felt like it fitted so much. And then like, yeah. you know, you, you're clearly utilizing some of those skills that you learned in those 10 years now. Yeah. I'll tell you the, the biggest difference, <laughs> biggest difference when I arrived at that job. And the thing that I at first could not get over was that in my corporate role, you know, a lot of people were, we were working in sort of a high pressure environment often, even though it was like entertainment marketing. Like there was a lot of, uh, let's say passion <laughs> going around where people were like stressed. And like, like I remember like colleagues in my for-profit, like seeing them like crying because they were so stressed. And in my nonprofit seeing that people were crying because they were so inspired. <laughs> like the first time that I was at a staff meeting and realized people were crying because they were like so moved by what we were talking about. I was like, oh my gosh, this is such a different experience. And I love it. Like, you know, I was lucky to go to a nonprofit that was very much like a professional organization, right? Like there were so many things about it that I thought were very similar to how the for-profits that I had worked for were run, right? In terms of the ambition, like the goal setting, the, you know, assembling a team of experts. But there were also things that were, that were very different, right? Like I so loved this like common mission that we were all building towards that, that wasn't just about profit, right? And, you know, especially as we were, preparing to launch the No Kid Hungry campaign, this sense of like team that was coming around the building of that initiative that felt very unlike anything that I had ever done launching a project around, you know, a big television series or special or movie release. And just like seeing how much of themselves people were putting into it just really motivated me and wanted to make me do more. Yeah. And then like launching it and then being able to utilize these skills that I had learned about how to, how to get people excited about what is happening, how to communicate with people as a community, how to give them a sense of belonging. Like these things that I was doing around someone being a super fan of some franchise, but, but suddenly doing it because they care deeply about the futures of, of kids and like this, like, core idea that no child should grow up hungry in America and, you know, and then calling on them to support that cause in different ways, right. To become a donor, to, you know, write the representative, to come to one of those fundraisers. That was exactly the same thing that got me initially involved in the cause. I mean, I love, I loved it in a, in a way that I've never loved working before. Yeah, I get it. I mean, this, this will make you laugh, but I sold jeans in a high-pressure environment many, many, many years ago. <laughs> and what was missing was the why. Like, why why are we pressurizing each store to compete against each other and sell as many jeans as possible? And and it was like, I mean, this is going right back to my sort of late teens, early 20s, but the why just wasn't there, like, for me. Um, and so I totally understand. But you, 
like you've you've I guess in terms of stepping away from the bigger salary, money just doesn't drive you for what it looks like. I mean, money's a consideration for me, definitely. Right? Like, I mean, I'm at an age now where <laughs> I think about like what's left of my career. I think about retirement, like what I want life to be in the later part of my life. Like I don't have the luxury of uh, not thinking about money. Right. Like, but like when the first consulting job, like when I was working for the media agency, like early on in my career, I felt like the money there became a trap. Like the money was so good. And I was, you know, young, like making more money than I ever thought that I would make anywhere close to that age. And I, started to have the these feelings of like, can I leave this money? Can I walk away from this money? And like, shouldn't I just stay here and make money? And felt like that was really wrong for me, like, and who I, or what I wanted my career to be, right? And like, you know, I stepped away from a lot of money in order to go to National Geographic and then stepped away from more earning power in order to make another transition, right? And felt comfortable in doing that because I felt like I was shaping a career for myself. You know, and I had the opportunity in my last organization, you know, to sort of, you know, go from leading digital, you know, to over the nearly decade that I was there, like take on progressively more roles, like, you know, and therefore be able to earn more money. And, you know, and while also being proud of the work that I was doing. And so I would like to be a person who says, like, I don't really think about the money, but I certainly do. <laughs> like, it's just yeah. the reality, you know, of life. And like, especially now that I'm living in New York, it's not. Yeah. So how did the opportunity with Val for Girls come up? So um, exciting for you because your first CEO role, yeah. leading a team. Like how how that come about? So I I loved being at No Kid Hungry. It's the best job I've ever had. Like, and I lived and breathed it. And I also started to think that like I needed to be gone by year ten. Like I was like, I love this. I'm so happy to have been a part of it. And I want to push myself to grow in different ways and uh, to continue learning and starting to think that in order to do, do that, I needed to go somewhere else and have a different experience. And I, you know, shared that with the, the CEO of that organization and like thinking about telling him what I was thinking for the future. And that I, in my next role, like really wanted to lead an organization and, you know, that I wasn't leaving anytime soon. This is probably like year eight or something that I had this conversation between, or maybe between year seven and eight. It was like, you know, talking about what my ambition was. And, you know, he very kindly made opportunities for me within the work that I was doing to be able to set myself up for a CEO role. Like I did a lot more work with the board at that organization and with the planning of the meetings and board relations, I did a lot more with different kinds of fundraising that I hadn't been doing, right? Like more introduction into like major gifts, for instance, and managing some relationships there, more of the like cross-functional sort of projects that cut across different teams and, you know, what was a fairly large organization, 200 or so people. And, uh, you know, I'm really grateful for those learning opportunities then as I got to like year nine, I, you know, started a, a search more in earnest and I made a list of people. Actually, a career coach gave me this some advice that I should make a list of 25 places that I might want to work. 
and a list of 25 people that I knew who could get me to some of those places. And the, the, the 25 places list wasn't very helpful, but the 25 people list was <laughs> extremely helpful yeah. because I spent power of the nail Yeah. I mean, I spent six months walking through that list and having one-on-one conversations with each of them and telling them, you know, I'm thinking about what's next. Here's what I'm looking for. Here's what I'm not looking for. Getting their advice for me, asking them to, you know, suggest organizations that I might consider. That those conversations also helped me sharpen my focus on what I was looking for. And those conversations, you know, presented several opportunities to me. Like I was part of four CEO searches, the first of which I desperately wanted and wasn't ready. It was like really early on in my in my looking. Two others that I felt like weren't the right fit for me. And the fourth is the role that I hold now where one of those 25 people that I had spoken to had gotten an email from the founder saying that she was launching this organization, looking for a CEO. And and she my this my friend who was on the list, like forwarded me the email and she said, I think this is your next job. Like I read it and I agreed. I was like, I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> it was sort of a lengthy process from there to getting the the job, but that was how it all came about. When you have that sense that it just fits, it's just right, and you kind of probably maybe in danger of like front footing it too much, right? So being too much swagger, possibly. Do you remember like how you presented? I mean, I think that you know, there's been a couple times in my life where I've read something and felt like a lot of certainty, like. Certainly the first job that I took at No Kid Hungry, when I read that job description, I was like, this is the job I'm doing next. Like there was no doubt in my mind, like that it was going to be right for me. And I felt the same way when I read what they were looking to do at Val, because I felt like it was so in line with what my experience had been, you know, focused on a very different problem. But, you know, what the core of what they were looking to do really spoke to my you know, love of building partnerships, of rallying people around a cause, like bringing an industry alongside a cause. And, you know, felt, I also though I'm very practical, right? If I reading a job description like that, I, it's also like, and if this doesn't work, it, another great thing is going to come along. <laughs> like I'm very, I'm very like optimistic uh, leader <laughs> in, you know, giving it my, my all for something. And, but if it doesn't work out, like, greater pastures or elsewhere. Right. But I, as I got into the recruitment process, you know, loved every conversation that I had and conversation after conversation really built my certainty that this would be a good next role for me. And so it was a lot smaller when you joined and it's a, it's a lot bigger now, but also you had to contend with a global pandemic. And I imagine some scary moments around where the funds are going to come from, like where you were in the growth kind of cycle. I don't know, but you're like you have led through probably the most difficult point in most nonprofits history. Yeah, I mean, I started in uh, let's see October 2019, and I was the only full time employee on my first day. There were some consultants who had been in the mix that the board had been working with to get the organization sort of standing up, and I, you know, went from like this leading this really big team to being just me. <laughs> it was crazy lonely for me. Like that was a really hard transition as a leader, like from going from having all these people that you're working with in the day to day. And like, I've always derived a lot of sort of professional pleasure from 
working with a team, inspiring a team, like bringing common purpose and, uh, you know, starting then from scratch of, okay, it's me and now we're building. And then early on the pandemic really upsetting our plans, right? Like so much of our early planning was around weddings, celebrations, like these people activating in this way. And, you know, the pandemic put a halt to all of that. Like suddenly there were no celebrations that were happening or if they were, they were very small and very distant, right? And also that being the period where I was making my very first hires and like suddenly going to all Zoom interviews, then onboarding people, remotely, all these things that were just like really different from what I had envisioned, but in really needing to, in that period, just remind myself, it's like one day and one thing at a time. Like this yeah. is the is that what got you through? Like literally the one day at a time. Certainly. I mean, yeah. I mean, that got me through, I think my relationship with our founder got me through. Like, you know, there were some days where she and I would get on the phone and just like, be sad. <laughs> this is really hard. <laughs> and, but, you know, one of the real bright spots of that period was that, unfortunately for them, right, like event professionals all around the world were out of work, but they were very willing to like chat with us in that period and like get to know us. And so we spent so much of that sort of lockdown pandemic period, like building relationships, like talking to them about what we wanted to do on the other side of the pandemic, like, how we envision working with them and just hearing about what their businesses are, how, you know, what they prioritize in terms of their partnerships. And that really paid off for us on the other side of COVID when things opened up again, right? Like suddenly these people who were like, you know, really busy, like, and had taken some time to learn about us, like, you know, suddenly knew us more and were more invested in what we wanted to do. You know, I built a really small team during that time. We continue, we, you know, we sort of flexed our plans and our core funders remained really committed to the vision and, and knowing that on the other side of the pandemic, that the opportunity was still there that had been there before, but it was hard days, hard days. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for most of us, we, um, you know, work at home, there was, it was very blended, right? So it was all right there, right? In the living room or the bedroom or the wherever it was. It was all right there. And for me, it was all right there until earlier this year. Like I, I finally left the working at home. Like it was, it was time for me to have more separation between my work and my life. <laughs> and lots of vision for the future. Like, you know, you've grown the, the headcount, you've, you've increased the income, you've delivered more impact. You're helping more girls be empowered. What's the sort of vision for the future? So, you know, we've been in this intense period of learning as an organization and learning both about how we can best mobilize money, how we can best bring in new partners. And, you know, I'm really focused on growing our revenue from, you know, where, where we are today, which is just under 6 million for this year to more than 50 million over the coming years so that we can invest so much needed funds in these local communities and expand the grantee pool that we're supporting. And, you know, for me, the thing that I'm most excited about is, as we look at our strategy is that uh, couples who choose to align their celebrations with us 
are raising really significant dollars. Like, you know, the average couple today, you know, excluding people who are sort of our outliers who are raising like really large sums of money. You know, the average couple today is raising a little more than 1600 US dollars just by, you know, adding a link to their wedding website or, you know, turning one of their wedding events into a fundraiser for us. So the team and I are really focused on how do we smartly bring in more couples to be able to do that, to sort of see the revenue grow alongside that that stream. I'm also really excited about some brands that we're working with. Like this year, we have two new partnerships that I'm really excited about. One is uh, in the bridal space, like an accessories line that you know, globally, every time that one of their accessories is sold, 10 US dollars is donated to, to Val. It's like a wonderful commitment from a really passionate leader at that brand. Called, that brand is called Justin Alexander. But then something really different in that we have a promotion this October with Royal Caribbean Cruises across all their cruise ships. Three brands raising money for us in different ways. And it's a really different sector for us, but one that I am really proud that we're partnering with. And just being CEO, does it feel like it fits? Does it feel like it's you? I think that I have always loved leading, right? And I think there's so many things about a CEO role that really appeal to me in terms of going out and meeting with people, like matching their passion with our purpose. I love the public facing, the community aspects of it. Like, do I love the more behind the scenes, like financial stuff, <laughs> like the more governance pieces? Not as much, right? Those have been both learning curves for me and a place where I'm like, okay, like <laughs> I have to focus in and do this now. But I really love being the CEO of this organization. I love building, right? Like it's something across my career that I've been passionate about early stage organizations, you know, creating something. And that's been a great fit for me here. Clay Dunn, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely Podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing because I sure do.